Okay, Numbers chapter 32. If you're not turned there yet, if you'll join me there as we continue to wrap up the book of Numbers. Just a few more chapters uh, left here. And we'll uh, be turning the corner on the book of Numbers. Again, at this point, the children of Israel uh, find themselves after that 40-year wandering in the wilderness now. The younger generation is back on the border uh, of the promised land. And boy, a rather unfortunate thing now begins to unfold here. If you read ahead in this 32nd chapter, uh, which causes Moses to be quite uh, shocked uh, in regards to what his whole life calling has been about uh, and they now come to the edge of the promised land and what unfolds here is uh, quite tragic and ultimately has lasting results all the way into the New Testament uh, which we'll talk about ultimately as we look at this chapter together. But look at me there in verse 1 as it now begins. It tells us, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, again two of the tribes of the nation of Israel, it tells us that they had a very great multitude of livestock. Now, certainly some of that was acquired just by natural experiences and the acquisition. But if you also remember in chapter 31, there just recently was what? A tremendous victory. We saw last time a miraculous victory where they against odds went into military conflict and we saw that as they counted up the 12,000 soldiers that had gone into that particular conflict that God drafted and told them to engage in, in that battle that not one soldier was missing. So it was a miraculous, supernatural victory from God as he helped them in the midst of the battle. And together with that, they acquired and amassed all types of spoil from that. And God blessed them tremendously, so much so that out of gratitude, they were giving free will offerings to the Lord in response because they were just wanting to worship. So... Uh, no doubt as the result of the gradual acquisition over time and probably maybe some of it as a result of the spoils of war that they had just acquired in a prior battle and a few battles prior to this that they've been engaged in were told about the tribe of Reuben and Gad that they had a very great multitude of livestock. So they have a lot of cows and livestock. And notice when they saw, so something happens now with their perspective, uh, the lust of the eyes get engaged here. They saw the land of Gilead that indeed that region was a place, it was a good location for livestock, which they had a lot of. So the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, uh, Ataroth, Debon, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Sheblam, Nebo, and Beon. Again, these are all locations on the eastern side of the Jordan River, so it's right outside the promised land. Remember, they're on the border now. They have not crossed over the Jordan and into the land. They're right on the edge, but they're on the eastern side outside of the promised land. They say, we realize this area is a place for livestock. The country, verse 4, they refer to it as which the Lord has defeated before the congregation of Israel. It's a land, imagine that, for livestock. And your servants, imagine that, have livestock 
So this is a place that we can see Gilead. It just, it just really seems to be a great place for livestock, for pasturing flocks and herds. Uh, and that area to this day still among the Bedouin people, uh, the area of much of Jordan, that territory they're describing there, it is known to be a very lush fertile territory that is very good for you know livestock and flocks and herds and so forth so it indeed was exactly what they're describing here and they see that it's a land for livestock so therefore they propose a suggestion verse 5 therefore they said if we found favor in your sight notice let this land outside the promised land let this land be given to your servants as a possession do not take us over the Jordan. So here's what happens. What they look at seems to be good for them. And in essence, what you have here now, and if you can imagine this, after 40 years of just wandering in the wilderness, after having been on the border of the promised land once before in Kadesh Barnea, and remember the 12 spies went in, they came back and report comes back. 10 of the 12 are giving a negative report and those 10 spies manage to in a sense dishearten and discourage and dissuade all the rest of the two and a half million people in a congregation to not go into the land for other reasons now here they are 40 years later after all the consequence of that on the edge of the promised land again and now these two tribes ultimately we'll see another half tribe manasseh joins them later in the chapter they now come to moses and they look at things from their again logical perspective from their own personal persuasion say well look we seem to have a lot of livestock and this area over here well we've already conquered some enemies and there's no more battles to fight you know what they say this seems to be a good place for livestock and we have a lot of livestock so therefore why don't you just let this be our inheritance instead of taking us over there into the jordan I know that was God's plan, but this is kind of close to God's plan. I mean, this is really close to what God said he wanted. I mean, it's, I mean, it's literally just almost, it's almost the same thing. It's very close to it. So let this land, not the promised land, let this land, they say, be given to your servants and do not take us over the Jordan. So in essence, when they see what looks good for them, they're persuaded in essence to say, why go any further? this is far enough i mean this is good enough uh, and and why work harder i mean and, and besides this offers instant gratitude why wait longer this is instant gratification why work harder why go fight more battles why press further into more things when we can just settle for this this is good enough so what we have here is these two tribes in essence they want to settle for less they want to make a concession and rather than go completely into everything that God has intended for them, they're willing to just be content and to settle for less and make concessions regarding God's will and plan and embrace less than God's best. Embrace less than God's ideal. Embrace less than what God's ultimate plan and intention is. And again, as we've talked about before, these historical events and these things that transpire, the Bible is very clear to us that yes, they're literal historical events, but they're also prefigurements and types, things that are represented to us of the spiritual life. We talked about how Egypt is a picture of the world, bondage and slavery and misery 
in sin and enslaved in the world system and then yet how one like Moses, Jesus Christ comes as a deliverer and brings us deliverance out of that world system and the bondage and misery and slavery to sin and then leads us ultimately to the place where after a time of wilderness wandering that God wants to bring us across the Jordan a picture of death to self and I believe in some ways uh, the, the baptism of the waters of the Spirit of God that bring us then into the promised land which isn't a type of heaven it's a type of the promised life of the Spirit it's a type of fullness in Christ where there are still battles to be fought and there are victories to be experienced as God gives us these victories again like Jericho what did they do? They marched around the walls of Jericho and the walls fell down. Again, that victory was given to them. It was given to them by faith and by receiving what God promised to them. And so Jericho and the promised Canaan land is to be a picture, as we studied in the book of Joshua, of what the promised life of the Spirit is supposed to be. The fullness of life in Christ. To experience all the promises of God. Everything God intends for us in the Christian experience victory over things and taking all the territory that the Christian life isn't supposed to include entering into the fullness of the Christian life and everything that God's intended rather than which is what this pictures being willing to settle outside of God's best outside of the fullness of the life in Christ that God intends for us and to be saved yeah delivered out of Egypt yes but yet living a carnal Christian experience. And the truth of the matter is, that is where some of God's people are at. Have they been saved? Yes. Have they experienced deliverance and salvation from sin and taken out of the world? Yes. But too often, sometimes, those who have been saved become saved soul and then wasted life. And they choose to live outside of the best of what God intends. And, and the mentality is much like the same here. If you see what's being pictured, the mentality is they choose to just settle for less. The idea is, is you know, we've gone far enough. I mean, we've, we've they've had a, a few victories over the flesh. Uh, they've accomplished the salvation of God and experience in their life. And they've had a few victories. But then they come to a place where they kind of, you know, this is kind of good enough. I mean, I don't really need to go any further. I'm, I'm content with this. I mean, I don't, want, I don't need to be as radical as those people or as, as spiritual as my parents are or these other Christians. I mean, they, just, they go a little overboard with it. I mean, they come to church on Wednesday night too. It's a little radical. I mean, don't you know, that's when the good shows are on or, I mean, we got to work the next morning. What are you talking about? I mean, you know, so there's always that mentality of you know people look at other people or just for whatever reasons they just choose to say yeah i know there's more but but this is good enough i really i just i don't really have interest in going any further i don't really have much interest in going any deeper and pushing to the next level to experience and embrace all that god has for me to say there's more i want everything god has for me i want the promised life in the spirit I want to experience all the victory and all the territory of the Christian experience that's intended for me. And here, so often, like these people, Christians can settle for less. They can embrace less than God's best. And what they're doing here, look at it, they're making a decision. How? They're making a decision based upon their perspective and their own desires. They say, hey, we've got a lot of livestock. This is a livestock place. This is cow territory. And we have a lot of cows. This is cow territory. You know what? This seems good enough. But the reality is, 
what they're seeing from their perspective and met their desires, they're making decisions according to their desires and what they see with their eyes from their perspective, but they're not making those decisions in consideration of, but what's God's best? Maybe I think this is best, or maybe we think this looks best, but is this God's best? Is this really what God wants? Is this the fullness of what God's purpose and intention is for our lives? When they saw what they wanted, they realized we're going to take that and settle for less. But what they wanted was not what God wanted. And we have to remember that in the Christian life. We have to remember that sometimes what we want may not be what God wants. And at times we can fall prey to making poor decisions and settling for less. We can say, well, I mean, I mean, this guy's close to a Christian, so I'll marry him. I mean, he's the closest thing I've seen that looks good at least. All the other Christians that are real Christians, they're just not quite appealing enough. So, I, and, and rather than wait upon God to bring about his best and his fullness, we can make concessions and settle for less. And we can say, well, this is close to God's will. It's almost God's will. And why was this area appealing to them? Specifically, and I think it's insightful, why did they like this land on the eastern side outside of the Jordan? Well, two things. First of all, take note, that area, they say, the Lord has already given us victory in this territory. The Lord's defeated people already that were enemies in that area. So that area required little work. It required no real investment of their endeavors or their effort. It, it represented because it was already conquered and there were no battles to fight on the eastern side of the Jordan. It represented a life of ease. So it was appealing because it represented ease. There are no battles here. If I push further, I may have to engage in some battles. I may have to invest. I may have to, oh, that scary word, make a sacrifice or something. I may have to be committed. I may have to really step forward and pursue and take steps of faith and press in and see what God may have and, and watch God work and, and be willing to set aside my desires and my ideas and my perspectives and say, you know, because I want what God wants. But instead they said, hey, th th this is good enough because it represented ease and they wanted a life of ease. And not only did it represent ease, but the second thing is what we've been talking about it appeared, and it was indeed, a land that was best for cattle raising, and they had cattle. And in that day, cattle raising and your cattle and your animals and your herds, that represented your wealth. That represented your prosperity, if you would, or your success. So it indicated the best opportunity for them to be what? Successful. This is the place for prosperity. Over there, we don't know. And see how the human mind thinks? They're thinking in their mind, I mean, it couldn't possibly be that in God's best, there's something better in the land of milk and honey than what we could find here. I mean, how dare we actually trust that God could prosper us where he wants us to be? I mean, we better take matters into our own hands. This seems like a prosperous location, a prosperous path. So it represented ease and it represented prosperity. And so therefore, it was very appealing to them. And let's be very candid. A lot of times, that's what causes Christians to settle for less in the spiritual life. Because they're, they're attracted to a life of ease. They're attracted to a life that doesn't involve commitment or sacrifice or going an extra step and saying, you know, I'm going to de deny myself 
take up the cross and follow Jesus. Boy, that's that's radical or something. Mm, I don't know. I, I actually thought that that's the truth of what discipleship really is supposed to be. And listen, I'm, I'm growing in the same area as everyone else, but when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, I get the indication that Jesus says that if you're not willing really to deny yourself, take up your cross, which means to embrace the will of God because that's what the cross was for Jesus, and follow him, then Jesus says, you're really not coming after me. You may be going after yourself, you may be trying to build your own life. You may be going after other people or other things. But Jesus said that's the essence of really what Christian discipleship is and really what it means to be a follower of Christ. So when a choice for, well, what's, this is just easy. It's comfortable. It doesn't disrupt my life. I just, and and I, my top priority is, look, I mean, I got cattle. So I need to think about cattle and prosperity and wealth and affluence. And if those things many times grip our hearts, Jesus speaks of how you know the, the word of God being choked out in the parable of the souls. Remember he said because people, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and it can choke out spiritual fruitfulness. And so many times people are willing to settle for less than everything that God has. And even as 1 Corinthians describes that there are those can be carnal Christians Christians but carnal Christians living a, a carnal life and the mentality is again this is pretty close to what God intends it's almost like God's plan so this should suffice because it's almost what God's word says it, it's almost like what God intended for us so surely close is enough that's the mentality but the truth is close to God's plan is not God's plan and close to God's intention for your life is not God's intention for your life. Close is never good enough. They were elevating their own self-will over God's will and God's plan and really over the interests of the rest of the congregation by saying, we think we'll stay out here. Don't take us over. You guys go in. We'll just stay out here. And ultimately it had an effect upon others as well. So just a very interesting scenario the Bible puts before us of really what is a tremendous picture of the carnal Christian life and a grave mistake that we can all be guilty of of kind of just settling for less and not pressing into everything that God has for us you know be warned we can all fall prey to this and this is always a mistake it's always a mistake when we choose to not fully obey the Lord, not completely press in and to pursue everything that the Christian life has for us. Instead, we should pursue wholeheartedly and say, close is not good enough. I want everything that Jesus has. If God's word says this, I want to obey it in its completeness, not say, well, it's close to what the Bible says or this is close to what God's will is. That's never a good thing. So they now come with their plea let this land, verse 5, be given to us as a possession. Don't take us over the Jordan. And Moses says, nah, okay. That's not what he says. Look what happens. Verse 6. Moses said to the children of Israel, and should we be surprised, to the children of Reuben and Gad, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? I wonder if he wanted to say, on your duffs? But I mean, he didn't say that. That's a good thing I wasn't writing the Bible. I mean, imagine what he's hearing here. Should, are you kidding? Should we go to war? Everybody else go to war while you sit over here and, and literally get high on the hog? And, and I mean, 
I mean, just and, and raise more cattle and, and why we just sit here and you sit here and we go off to battle and fight battles because you want ease and this is what you want to choose. So, I mean, he is just shocked. And you, can, you have to keep in mind, keep in your heart, M Moses is thinking, I would kill to be able to go into the promised land. We just did this 40-year thing, he's going to say, because your prior generation didn't want to go in and... I ended up getting so angry with them. I got in trouble. I misrepresented God. And as a result of my you know, spanking here, I can't even go into the promised land. You're right here on the edge and you're asking to stay outside. And I mean, he's just utterly astonished. And he gives a pretty firm reproof here. He says, shall you sit here while we go to war? Again, and that's unfortunately the selfishness of the carnal Christian life. Oh, yeah, other people can take it. Other people can engage all the spiritual battles. We'll just kind of sit here and, you know, seems like the work's all getting done. And everybody else, you know, is doing the war and the battle and the, you know, activity. And others are just sitting around and living quite carnally saved, but wasting away their Christian life. So verse 7, he launches in. He says, now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given to them? Look what he goes on to say. Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, the spies. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given to them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day and he swore an oath saying surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because they have not again notice wholly followed me except Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite and Joshua the son of Nun for they notice were different they had wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger, Moses reminds them, was aroused against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the generation had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, he says, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away, he says now, from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy, he says, all these people. So Moses gives a rather hearty, firm rebuke here. I mean, he does not mince words at all, you can tell. Moses right away, his mind just switches into a, a gear and he's like, this is like a really bad rerun. Are you kidding me? Are we really having this conversation? He's thinking to myself that, that actually you're, you're contemplating and actually asking if this can take place. So he recounts the history of what happened with the prior generation. And how they now, in a sense, look, he, he says, this is sinful. This is wrong. This is rebellion against everything that God wants. And notice what his biggest concern was. He's thinking to himself, if 10 people were able to turn away the plan of God for two and a half million people, what's going to happen if two whole tribes choose not to go into the land? So he's, he's seriously alarmed. He's greatly concerned. This is not God's plan. It is a horrible idea. 
It's not what the plan of the Lord is. And look what his biggest concern is. Not only the consequence, but look back up in verse 7. He mentions it in verse 7 and how the same thing happened in the days of their fathers. Verse 9, when they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel to not go into the land 40 years prior. Look at verse 7 again. He says, not just why will you sit here, why we go to war. In other words, I'm angry that you're going to get to sit there while we go to war. But his other concern, verse 7, is he says, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land? See, Moses understood something. We are not, as God's people, independent. We're interdependent. Whether we recognize it or not, we influence others in what we do or in what we don't do. And Moses' concern is, if you seek to settle for less and stay out here, his great fear was, this is going to discourage all the rest of God's people. As they see you settling for less and not willing to sacrifice, not willing to trust the Lord, to take steps of faith and obedience, to press into everything that God has and say, this is not everything God has. God has more for us. God has greater things for us, deeper things for us. And Moses' heart is, this is going to deflate everyone else's enthusiasm to seek God fully, to obey God completely. He says, you're going to discourage the hearts of the rest of God's people. And look how true that is. We can really, I believe, as Christians, if we're not careful, discourage and dishearten other believers at times if we're not careful. Our lack of willingness to obey the Lord in a certain area or our lack of interest, even just in the things of God. Our lack of interest in going further and, and kind of having that heart attitude of, well, I mean, this is, this is good enough. I mean, I'm, young, I'm a Christian. I want to be a Christian. But you know, this is kind of just good enough. And our settling for less and being content with less than everything God has for us and not going any further and just kind of settling for the status quo in the spiritual life, that can really discourage other people. It can have a... Tr because other people look and say, well, I mean, well... Nobody else goes to the prayer meeting. Why should I go to the prayer meeting? Nobody else seems to really do the hard thing when they have to make a hard decision. I mean, I look at other Christians and they just seem to disregard what God's word says. And I know they're Christians too. And so why should I sacrifice? Why should I make the righteous decision? That person just did what they felt like in the situation. They didn't seem to take a stand to obey God's word. And, and, and if we're not careful, when we shrink back and settle for less, whether it's with our children that we represent the Lord to as parents, whether it's with other Christians, we can really discourage other people. The truth of the matter is, in the same way, when we see someone else really living for Jesus or pursuing Jesus or on fire for the Lord, or I mean, is it not true when you come together with God's people and, and you see the opposite, there's something really encouraging about that. Hey, well, if you're going, I'm going. If you're going to be committed, I'm going to be committed. If you're going to pray, then I'm going to pray. If you're going to serve the Lord, then I'm going to come. And, and it has that effect but in the same way as Christians, a lot of times we fail to realize, oh, well, what's, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Look, it's not just about you. You have an influence on other people. And you can really discourage and dishearten other people from following the Lord, which is a really tragic thing. 
and cause other people to just shrink back and say, well, if, if you're going to stay out here, then I'm just going to stay out here too. Then I'm, This is good enough for me too. Because we naturally are inclined to the flesh. Hosea says that my people are bent on backsliding. That, that's what we're bent towards. So our natural tendency is, well, if you're backsliding, I'll just backslide with you. <laughs> I mean, right, that's, our, that's our natural tendency. We easily just kind of gravitate. And this is what Moses was greatly concerned about. So he's, he's very alarmed what's going to happen. Verse 16, notice they now respond to this firm, strong reproof of Moses. He kind of rather challenged them hardly. And it says, then they came near to Moses and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, verse 16. But we ourselves, they say, will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones, our kids, will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return. This is their, their vow. We're not going to return to our homes here on the eastern side until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us. Excuse me? You mean you've chosen it for yourself? Our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan. So as Moses strongly reproves them, now look, don't get the wrong impression here that Moses overreacted and that they always had this plan all along. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry, I jumped to conclusions. I didn't know you were going to come over and fight with us and as if somehow they're the righteous one now and Moses is looking dumb because they're saying, Moses, come on, we would never just leave you high and dry, Mo. I mean, we were going to come in and fight with you at least. I mean, how would you think that we wouldn't do that? I mean, we're more noble than that. Come on. Because look, verse 5, what does the end of it say? Do not take us into the Jordan. The only reason they're doing what they're doing now is because they feel strongly convicted because Moses, as their spiritual leader, just rebuked them rather firmly by the Spirit of God and speaking the truth in their life because what Moses reproved them with of the past history was what was accurate and true. And this was not God's plan. So this is them sort of just softly backpedaling verbally now and feeling convicted. And, and, and you listen to that, look, okay, here's what we're going to do. We, we got this covered. We got a plan here. It's all going to work out. We're going to build some shelters for our family and our livestock over here. Just, we're going to get them set up here and get them established, make sure they're safe. And we're not going to bring the wives and the kids over into the land and risk them. We're just going to let them get settled. And then all the men and the warriors, we're going to come over and we're going to fight with you and we're going to stay with you and fight with you. Look, they say, verse 18, we won't even return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received our inheritance or their inheritance, but our inheritance, it's fallen to us over on this eastern side. Now, now, here's what happens, in essence. Isn't it interesting how in these situations, a person can always reconcile what they want and present it in a very favorable light? They want what they want, they've been reproved, and rather than saying, mm, you know, you're right, and maybe we should do the right thing, we should do what God's clearly spoken to us to do, instead, they very quickly put a very spiritual twist on it. Notice there's a lot of God speaking there. Sounds rather noble. I mean, yeah, we're going to come over and fight with you. We're just going to make sure the kids and the family are settled first or whatever. And isn't it interesting how I said we can rationalize what we want at times and present it in a very favorable way so it sounds really reasonable. 
and it sounds even quite acceptable where people would say, okay, that makes, yeah, that makes sense. I guess close is good enough. And that makes sense. And I mean, you're going to help others and maybe you're not going to do it yourself, but you're going to at least support the cause. I'll pray for you while you pray. You know, I'll stand behind you. And, and again, we can very easily just put a spin on things, which is basically what they're doing here is they're being approved. But even the nonsense of this, they say, we're not going to return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel, the other nine tribes, has received their inheritance when the battles are over. Now, now take this in mind. It's going to take a few years to fight all those victories and, and possess the land and settle in all the other tribes. So is that real wise? So we're going to purposely abandon our families for five years, seven years. We won't see our kids between 12 and 17. We'll never come back. We'll just, well, that's real wise. So let's leave our kids and abandon them to go do something else. And see, when we rationalize in our own minds how, I mean, close is good enough and it's almost it and we'll still make it work and we do this kind of thing, there's always a lunacy in the way that we process this. We make it sound so wonderful so often. But there's always just repercussions that are damaging, not to mention the fact that, look, these kids who they were not bringing into the land, the kids were going to get robbed of the opportunity to see God work. They're getting robbed of the opportunity to see their parents follow God's will and to be able to be kids who can say, you know what, wow, I watched my parents follow God's will. I watched my parents face giants and trust God and see God move and do powerful things. And look, those kids weren't getting benefited by staying on the eastern side. They were getting ripped off because they weren't getting to see the fullness of God's work and the greater things of God. You know, those other nine tribes were the kids that were benefiting. Even though they were going to be in the midst of the battlefield, they were going to see God because they were going to be with their parents and watch their parents serving God and experiencing God at work in their lives. So here they come up with this idea. Now look what Moses does, verse 20, the response now. Then Moses said to them, if, and I have that circle in my Bible, if you do this thing. Notice what he just did there. He relinquished the freedom for them to exercise their free will. If you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for war and all your armed men cross over to the Jordan before until the Lord has driven out his enemies from before him and this land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. So take note here in the midst of this, was this God's best? Was this God's ideal? You can't say because God told the people to all go in. So don't misread the language. Oh, okay, Moses realized, well, I guess close is good enough. What this is, quite frankly, here is this, is Moses let them decide for themselves. He respected their free will. And he said, look, if this is what you choose, you know, it, it may be God's permissive will. It's not God's best for you. But if this is what you want to choose, he allows them to have the free will to be exercised in their decision. He disagrees that's pretty clear from his reproof, if you remember. But he lets him decide. And he says, if you want to settle for less, if this is what you want to do, then okay, at least this is how the stipulations are going to work out in regards to your need to at least fulfill your responsibility to help out with your brethren. So again, and boy, that is so representative of what Jesus does with us too. He's quite a gentleman. Quite a gentleman. He's the king of kings, but he knocks on the door of our heart. 
And he, he allows our free will not to be violated and he will spread out his arms and please do not go down that path. Please do not go down that path. But ultimately, if we choose to pursue it still, he allows us to make that decision. It says, if you want to settle for less, you, I, 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 won't, I can't stop you. I won't violate your... So Moses says, look, if this is what you want to do, he sort of just relinquishes it over to let them do that. But he says, look, you need to do what you said. You need to honor your word. You need to go in and to fight the battle as you should in your obligation. And then verse 23, he says, but if you do not do so, then take note, he says, you have sinned against the Lord. Take note where all sin is. It's against the Lord. And be sure, famous phrase, your sin will find you out. So Moses says, look, you're saying you're going to go in and fight with your brethren and conquer the battles and then return back here to the eastern side and that's what you want to do. It's your choice. You have the freedom to do that. But he says, look, I'm not going to be alive because God just told me I'm about to die, remember. So I'm not going to be here to see you do that. But he says, look, just because I'm not here to see what you're doing, God will be witness to everything you just said and if you fulfill your word, God will see. And if you don't fulfill your word, he says, then that will be sin and God will be aware of that. He says, if you don't do what you say, then take note, you sinned against the Lord. Take notice there. This isn't a sin of commission. In other words, doing something that you're not supposed to do. This, in essence, is a sin of omission. In other words, if you don't do what you should do, then you sinned against the Lord. As James says in chapter 4, where he says, to him who knows the good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, there's a time when it is sin against the Lord to not do the thing that we know we're supposed to do, the right thing. For that's what This sin for them would be if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. It wasn't doing something they weren't supposed to do. A lot of times we think of sin that way. Well, I'm not supposed to do this. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do this. I don't do that. I'm a good Christian because I don't do all the things I'm not supposed to don't do. And God says, but what do you do? Because sometimes it's sin to not do something you're supposed to do. James says, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's sin too. A sin of omitting or holding back from doing the right thing. In other words, God puts something on your heart that he wants you to do, to be loving, to make a kind gesture, and you don't do it because you feel like being bitter instead. <laughs> God says, okay, it's not that you did something wrong. You didn't do the right thing you knew you should have done. That's sin. And this was the situation. They were giving their word. He says, if you don't fulfill it, that is sin. And notice he says, and if you do this, I won't be aware, but God will. And he says, and surely, sure, your sin will find you out. Now, I, I think a lot of times people read that and, and they get this impression that what God does, be sure your sin will find you out. And there's this idea that God just loves to expose people's sin. That God just, I just, I love when people try and get by on one with me. Because I love to expose them. And I love to really drive it home. And, and that God's just wait. I can't wait to just blow the horn on you and to just expose you and to make you. It went, please note the Bible says, be sure your sin. And say, God, be sure your sin is what's going to come find you out. Listen, God forgives sin. God forgets sin. But God also says there's a law in both nature and in spiritual life where we sow and we reap and your sin will find you out. It's sin itself, the very essence of sin, the fruit of sin, the product of sin, 
that causes us ultimately to get chased down by our own sin and eventually our sin catches up with us. When he says there, your sin will find you out, the, the essence, the idea is there, is your sin will ultimately find you. You can't run from it. Yet a lot of times, this is the error. We think that somehow that you know we can escape or elude and God basically says, look, sin itself, it will track you down. It'll eventually catch up to you. And not God trying to get you. It's just that if you plant seeds of sin into the soil, even if you're really sorry and you regret it, and you apologize and God forgives you, which is a wonderful thing, he says, nonetheless, still, you can't sow seeds of disobedience and pray for crop failure. It just doesn't work. Ultimately, it will catch up to you. It will track you down. Eventually, we may think we cleverly cover our tracks, and many do, and we imagine we'll never have to give account for something, and maybe you won't for a week or a year or 10 years or till the day that you die and then you stand before your creator that you thought you cleverly and ultimately it will find you out and it will catch up with you and it will have to be addressed. And ultimately the very nature of sin itself causes this reality to come to pass where it catches up. And see the reason this is important be sure your sin will find you out is that should cause us to remember that when we're tempted to compromise and to think, oh, no, I could probably get away with this. I think I can keep it covered. I think I can just keep working in a way where it'll, it'll never come out. I'll just say sorry for it and you know, brush it under there and okay, whew, let's just move on from this. Never happened, didn't take place. This lifestyle for just a season, these errors, these things I was doing, I, I've cleverly kind of masterly covered all this up and I'm going to do what's right now and we imagine we're never going to have to account for it. And God says, that sin, not God, that sin, he says, it will dog you, it will catch you, it will ultimately find you, and it will expose you. That's why, listen, when we do sin and fail, the wisest thing to do is to blow the horn on yourself. The Bible says, he who covers his sins will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Look, we're going to fail. So when we fail, the best thing to do is say, I blew it. And I want to bring it right into the light as soon as possible. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it maybe to another brother or two or sister or two. And say, would you pray for me for God's healing? That's what his word says. And, and that's the best way rather than letting it track you down. Because ultimately it's much more miserable and destructive when that happens. So just a great reminder of that reality there. So verse 24 says, Build cities therefore, Moses says, for your little ones, folds for your sheep. Do what's proceeded out of your mouth, he says. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones and wives and flocks and all our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will cross over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle just as my Lord says. So they're beginning to say, okay, Moses, we're, we'll submit to what we've said. We, we promise we're going to fulfill the commitment that we made. So Moses then gave command concerning them to Eliezer, the priest, to Joshua, the son of Nun. Why? Because they'd take over leadership as he 
passed away and to the chief fathers of the tribes and Moses said to the other leadership since he knew he'd die soon if the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you every man armed for battle before the Lord and the land is subdued before you then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession but if they do not cross over armed with you they shall have possession among you in the land of Canaan so what does Moses do? he establishes accountability he turns to the other leadership and he says, look, I'm not going to be here, but you keep them accountable. You're aware of what happened. You're aware of what they acknowledged. Hold them to their word. Keep them accountable, he says. If they obey what they said, then let them have what they wanted and let them be on the other side. If not, don't allow it to happen. So the children of Gad and Reuben answered saying, as the Lord has said, your servants will do. We will cross over arm before the Lord into the land of Canaan. But the land of the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side of the Jordan. So Moses gave the children of Gad to the children of Reuben. And notice now verse 33, important. And to the half tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom there of Sihon, of the Amorites, the kingdom of Og, of Bashan, the land with its cities and its borders, the cities surrounding the country. So again, description here in these next verses of the territory on the eastern side. But notice again, verse 33, he gave that area on the eastern side to Reuben, to Gad, and now what happens? The half-tribe of Manasseh, remember what Moses was concerned about earlier? Thankfully, God was merciful, and it was only another half-tribe that said, you know, we think we're going to do what they're doing. We think we'll settle for less too. Well, we think we'll stay over here too, which again is just a fitting reminder. Thankfully, God was merciful, but it's just a reminder. What did they do? They drew others to do the same things them. They drew others into their carnality. They drew others into their disobedience. They drew others into their spiritual apathy and laziness and unwillingness to pursue everything that God wanted. And again, it's just a reminder. Look, we, we, we can discourage and take others with us. This other half tribe chose to stay with them on the eastern side. Now, you know, let me say this in, in, in closure, just to give you a, a few final thoughts to meditate on this evening in relation to kind of what this chapter records for us. And I think it's a very important chapter. It looks like that perhaps they just got away with this kind of compromised plan of staying over on the eastern side of the Jordan. When you just read the chapter, it seems like, well, I mean, it kind of seems like it all worked out. Yeah, it got a little tense there for a few minutes with Moses reproving everybody, uh, and they talked their way out of it, and they made a deal, and it kind of worked out. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess close enough kind of works out in the end. I, I mean, it seems like they kind of got away with it, and it worked out. Yet, the reality is it leads to real problems down the road we'll see historically a few things first of all when Israel later on historically is attacked by their enemies the first tribes to be captured and taken into captivity are these two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan River because they put themselves in a vulnerable place they left themselves in a place where they chose to dwell isolated and vulnerable, lacking security and strength to stand. And when the enemies came, they were the first ones to fall. Not the ones that were in the promised land that God intended, but those who chose to settle for less and stay outside of what God's best was, they were the most vulnerable to enemy attack and being defeated and taken captive most quickly. 
And that's an important lesson for spiritual life because look, it may look like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, I'm trying to be committed as a Christian and look, the reality is, is people who choose to do that, typically, I can tell you this from a pastoral perspective, they tend to be the first people who fall into sin, who get into trouble spiritually because they're vulnerable, they're isolated from the people of God, they're not connected to the deeper things of the Spirit and as a result, they're much easier prey for the enemy. In Mark chapter 5 as well, we see this very area on the eastern side, again, the tribe of Gad. Mark 5 describes Jesus going to an area on the eastern side of the Jordan called the Gadarenes. And when he gets over there, he finds a demon-possessed man who he casts the demon out of and it rushes into a swine of a bunch of swine, a bunch of pigs, a herd of pigs who then rush down into the river. But he goes into this same territory years later in the time of Jesus and no longer are they just now raising cattle. Now they've digressed and they're raising pigs. And what were pigs we've already learned? Unclean animals. That was a violation of Jewish kosher law. And so what had happened? Because they had failed to go forward, it led to them ultimately going backward. And they began to compromise. And to make it worse, read Mark chapter 5, Jesus goes there, he radically transforms the life of a man. You would think people would be like, wow, Jesus, we have lots of more really messed up people in this region. Would you stay and help us? And what do they do? They say, get out of here. You're wrecking our business. We were really prosper until you came in and started stirring things up. And they tell Jesus to get out of town. They reject Jesus and want nothing to do with Jesus. So again, we see that it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out at all. Look, it was a good place maybe, a good place to dwell for ease and prosperity, but it was a really bad place to settle in, settling for less. It was a really bad place for their relationship with God and for raising a family. And those are things we have to remember, not, hey, what's the best life of ease, the best life of prosperity? What is the best choice and place to be in my life that's going to help my relationship with God go deeper and help me to stand strong in the Lord and help me to raise a godly family? Those are the things that matter.